Hello and welcome to episode 81 of Sensational She Geek Live from Yancey Street. This episode has a little, well, a lot less news than we normally have, focusing a little bit on some projects that came out in the past week. Um, and I'm also going to start doing a This Week in Manga Spotlight. Uh, so we'll hear about what I've been reading in manga this week. So look forward to that. But most of this week's news content is going to be coming from New York Comic Con news. We have a little bit of general news from that. And then there's, of course, many shows and movie updates and trailers and clips and whatnot. And then we have a little bit on DC Comics, and then for some reason quite a bit on Marvel Comics. And unfortunately this week we are going to be skipping the comic book picks. I am wildly behind on my comic book reading. Uh, it's actually kind of embarrassing. Um, but we do have comic book polls and then the stuff that came out this week. My cat's having a little freak out behind me. Stuff that came out this week, the week of, oh, well, I guess last week, the week of October 5th, will be gone over with what came out this week on the 12th uh, on episode 82. So we'll be talking uh, polls for this week, things that they are already out no matter when you're listening to this for October 12th, things that I am looking forward to reading because, again, I'm so behind on my reading. And we are continuing to split those up by publisher. We also have the penultimate episodes of She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, and Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. So that'll be She-Hulk episode 8, Rivet and Rip It, and then episode 7 of Rings of Power, The Eye. So stick around for all of that good stuff. Um, we're going to talk as many factoids and Easter eggs and fun facts and things like that that we can stuff in here. Uh, so make sure you stick around for all of that. So make sure you don't miss anything. Real quick here before we get started, please feel free to join the Yancey Street Discord. There is a fresh invite link at the bottom of each episode's description. The Discord is a safe, friendly place for socialization and discussion of whatever you want, really, comics, pop culture, or otherwise. And it's also where you can go to find links or images mentioned during the podcast all in one place. You can find me most easily on social media via Instagram. My username is at Anna with the comics because my name is Anna and hey, I've got a lot of comics. Uh, my podcast updates, if you want to find those, they'll be mostly on Twitter, where my username is at Savage she Geek because Sensational was too many letters. My website is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com, where I have been working on fixing up the site quite a bit so that it is still relevant in addition to the podcast, so make sure you go and check that out, including my beginner's guide to both comics and manga, covering hopefully any information that you might need to take your first steps into the world of comics or manga, including recommendations on comics, graphic novels, manga, series, etc. Uh, I also have my reading orders with commentary on appearances of various leading ladies, many of which I use to turn into the monthly Yancey Street specials, also linked all over my site, uh, and they focus on a so far female character from the comics to study thoroughly and then expand upon in a podcast episode of their own. I try to make them pretty relevant. For example, I'm about 95% done with a Jennifer Walters She-Hulk episode, which is going to be coming out uh, for her show this August. Additionally, anything pre-2021 content-wise can be found written in the website blog for your reference, which was all before I started the podcast. 
plus my podcast notes, which are basically all the content of each episode in written format, are made available on my blog as well for reading the podcast instead of listening, and for those who are hearing impaired if they'd like to keep up with the podcast events as well. And you can finally find links to anywhere that you can listen to the podcast, which is most, if not all, podcast hosting apps, and also includes YouTube. On YouTube, I also post the podcast episodes in a single playlist format, if that is easier way for you to listen. And I also occasionally post action figure review videos. It has been a lot more imports in the latest videos, as I have pretty much given up on Hasbro's Marvel Legends line, Uh, but I do have a big backlog of Legends videos, including a tour of our entire collection. It's a very long video tour. And soon, the HasLab Galactus, assuming that he is on his way, to go alongside last year's HasLab Sentinel video. I do have a podcast Patreon. You can find it under Sensational She Geek. It's set up for donations to support the podcast, as well as a Kofi, which is like a buy a creator a coffee situation. And Cash App, Venmo, PayPal are all linked on my link tree for donation towards the podcast, which should appear linked among a various other fun things at the bottom of each episode's description. Uh, I do also have a Redbubble shop called She Geek Shop, but I have been having some issues with their site and whatnot. Um, so I'm working on setting up my own storefront on my site, which hopefully will be coming by the new year and will be faster with more support from listeners. I said the news is a little bit shorter than usual. Um, first off, I want to talk some things that I was been watching this week, some things that came out. Uh, specifically, we're going to talk Hellraiser 2022, Werewolf by Night, and the most recent episode of House of the Dragon. Um, because I don't do House of the Dragon, you know, sections or spotlight discussions, but I feel like we should talk about this after some stuff in the last episode. But anyway. Um, Starting off with Hellraiser, which was the 2022 Hellraiser. I have never seen a Hellraiser movie, and I was just kind of feeling like watching horror movies recently because it's October, I guess, and I'm just feeling that vibe. Um, And somebody in a Discord that I'm in, not the Yancey Street Discord, someone in another Discord was talking about um, horror movies, and they said they were watching, uh, they had watched this new Hellraiser. It was like it just came out on Hulu. Perfect timing. I happen to, you know, have the Hulu Disney Plus ESPN bundle, so that all works great for me. Um, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I, um, I guess, I wouldn't really call it a horror movie. Um, I guess, yeah, um, <laughs> it's complicated. What really attra- what really drew me to deciding, oh, I think I'll watch Hellraiser and I think I'll watch this new one is um kind of learning about the fact that there is a kind of lore to Hellraiser um and that it's the what are they? The uh Cenobites, the people who are there what what are whatever they are. Um and there's the box and it draws them and then they're part of their game or whatever. Um, and they're basically reverse genies, genies of like incredible pain instead of incredible pleasure. But then they have the whole thing of like, oh, pain is pleasure and you experience everything if you have the full spectrum of, you know, all of that pain stuff too. And it's, you know, it, it does come from the book of, I'm guessing it was, it was called Hellborn or something like that. Um, but I also had read that the book apparently was written after the author had spent some time uh, looking into 
whatever era it was, um, nighttime, you know, New York BDSM club culture. So you kind of, knowing that, you kind of get into what the whole vibe of Hellraiser is. But what really fascinated me about it was that the Cenobites, like, what are they? And I guess we've never really seen, besides Pinhead, we've never really seen the Cenobites before. Um not at least to this extent. And that was really interesting to me to see the different like variations. Um, what are they? Are they aliens? Are they from a different, like, I guess, I guess different ultra dimensional beings. Um, and then they just like live in a world of pain and stuff. So I don't know. It's, it's pretty wild to an extent. It kind of reminded me of the silent hill movies. Um, well, I never played the games. I don't like scary games like that, but the silent hill movies, um, uh, whatever one it was that I watched fairly recently with Sean Bean. I think he's in most of them, but uh, I think it was a second one. But a similar vibe to like our whole culture is torture and pain. Uh, obviously, very different concepts of why, you know, the uh, Cenobites are clearly from somewhere else versus the Silent Hill things are like a creation of our own, I would almost say. But I really enjoyed it. Um, if you're into that kind of thing, I guess I, it's it's really what was the like the lore of it all. As as all these you know semi torturous to extreme torturous things are happening to these characters, I'm sitting here going, "Wow, what are they?" <laughs> not not really paying attention to the horror part of it. I guess is why I didn't feel like it was much of a horror movie. I thought it felt like a bit of a sci fi flick myself. <laughs> But anyway, Werewolf by Night was another one that we watched this past weekend. Um, it was good. It was fine. My thing with it is... Man-Thing was weird. Am I wrong? Was Man-Thing bizarre as hell? Like, I remember, like... Granted, we were, like, two or three gin and tonics in that night, but... Was he not... Was Man-Thing not extremely weird? Or was that just me? <laughs> and did we actually see much werewolf material? I should rewatch that, honestly. Really loved Elsa Bloodstone. I'm extremely happy to see that um, so many people also really enjoyed her character um, without the, you know, comics knowledge that some of us may have. So that's good. Hopefully we will see more Elsa Bloodstone and, you know, those other guys too, I guess, in the MCU soon. Now, I think I had mentioned how horrendous the um most most of everything was in the previous episode of House of the Dragon. I don't even know what number we're on now. Um it was definitely a complete flip with the now most recent episode. Um people are calling it the best episode of the season, one of the best episodes of Game of Thrones. I I I feel like a lot of people are forgetting how into Game of Thrones they were back then, but it's okay. You can forget that if you really want to. Um, there's some cringe to it, I guess. But anyway, um, this episode of the House of the Dragon was a lot better. Uh, my only thing with this is people are still forgetting that Damon is Raina's uncle. <laughs> We are aware that's weird, right, folks? That's we we're like we're not normalizing that, correct? I'm, I'm checking. Um, <laughs> um, and also, you know, up to this point, the show was kind of a cluster, you know, it was a hot mess in my opinion. Uh, so while this last episode was great, uh, do not expect me to be fawning over the show anytime soon. I mean, I wouldn't say the episode as a whole was great. There were good factors to it. Um, I think the king is finally dead, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> that that's the other thing. The, the friggin' directors or showrunners, whoever they were, who were saying, "Oh yeah, there's gonna be a really important death in this in this chunk of episodes. You have to wait and see who it is." And it's it's the king who is literally rotting, like from the inside out, like. That was not surprising to anybody. You're gonna tease a big crazy death, and it's 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 the it's the dead it's the ha it's the zombie king. Like, come on, come on, guys. My cat's still running around like a crazy man. Um, but yeah, so House of the Dragon, I I'm still have extremely low expectations for it um, because they have this incredible budget and are just kind of floundering still. So we'll see how it ends. And for our first This Week in Manga Spotlight, uh, I picked up Wotakoi. Wotakoi? I'm probably brutalizing the pronunciations as usual, uh, but it is really fun. It is called Love is Hard for Otaku. It is written by Fujita. And the first, well, I guess really it's the English volumes published by Kudansha. They are all um, two, they all contain volume, two different volumes of the Jap the original Japanese edition. So um, this volume one that I have in front of me is like a double thickness size. It's actually uh, a little bit larger, kind of like the um, if you read Jahi or any of those from that company from that publisher, they have kind of a larger size mangas as well. Uh, but it is also thicker because it is two in one manga. Um, but it was still only seventeen ninety nine as for the price on the back, uh, which I think is kind of, I guess it's only like $5 more than a regular manga, so that's not bad. And yes, it is called Love is Hard for Otaku, which I thought was pretty cute, so of course I grabbed it. I guess it is all completely out in Japan, and they actually even did some, what was it, some, um, like a live-action movie or a show? I think it was a movie, because I was looking it up yesterday. It was pretty funny to come across. Um, and it has decent reviews for that style of movie, you know, so if you're into that sort of thing, check that out. Basically, the plot of this um, is basically this girl who always breaks up with her partners because she's trying to hide the fact that she's an otaku. And if you don't know, otaku is basically like a severe nerd um, who they tend to have like limited social skills is like the cliche of it. Um, but she always tries to hide the fact from her boyfriends that she's an otaku and she's super into these games and things. Uh, and then that's how their relationship ends up ending as they find out and they're like, ew, what if I, you're weird. Um, so she runs into her coworker, who is an old friend from like high school or junior high school or something, and he's no taku too. And basically, they start dating each other because you know, and he he does admit that he loves her and stuff. So that's really cute. And um, for whatever reason, I don't I don't I don't really look that deeply into it. It's just really fun. Um, and there is a bonus comic I think at the end of each chapter if I'm not mistaken. Um, I am almost finished with volume. Actually, I am finished with volume. It looks like my bookmark is in the appendix, which a lot of mangas that are Japanese translated to English will have some kind of appendix of um, what page you will find this certain term and an explanation of that term. Uh, so if you ever come across any kind of major issues in translation or understanding the culture, I suppose, um, a lot of times they will have that kind of information explained for you in the back. I know for a fact that the Sailor Moon, I believe they're the, were they the Eternal or Sailor Crystal? They were Crystal, right? The, hmm, the big ones with the color front and the, the, sh the, the like pearlescent 
shiny front. I don't know. Um, I know those have a lot of contextual explanation in the appendix. So um, another just fun fact about if you want to pick up manga. And I am going to be trying to do these weekly. So come back next week for another Spotlight Manga. The last bit of kind of regular news before we get to New York Comic Con um, is that the Spawn movie has apparently got a script writer or a writer. Um, you may be asking yourself, what Spawn movie? Well, good question. For years now, Todd McFarlane, creator of Spawn, has been trying to get this alleged Spawn movie off the ground. Um, it's not really happened. Supposedly, Jamie Foxx is signed on for playing Spawn. Who knows how legitimate that is a thing this day and age. I don't know when that was announced or <laughs> when that deal was made, but Todd McFarlane made some little graphic design is my passion, like MS Paint doodle saying, big Spawn movie update tomorrow, and it was just the fact that they have a writer now. Um, do they even have a company that they are going to be producing it through? I don't know. So, while the Spawn movie has apparently gotten a writer, don't expect it to hit theaters anytime soon. Now, the bulk of our news, as I mentioned, is going to be New York Comic Con news. Uh, most of it is split up sectionally. There was only one thing that didn't really have... There was only really one bit of, like, general news that wasn't tied to a specific comic or a specific movie or or show, and that was that Dan DiDio has gone to DC Comics. Um, Dan DiDio was a long time higher up at Marvel Comics. I want to say that he was some kind of editor or something like that. He also does a lot of art, um, art covers specifically, um, and I guess that's what he's going to be doing now for this first leg of work at DC Comics. People were really taken aback, not taken aback, rather, surprised by this switch up because Dan Adayo has spent so long at Marvel um, that it's kind of surprising that he would flip directly over to what you might call the competition. Um, but as for, you know, what he's doing there, he's going to be doing, I think it was Detective Comics covers or possibly it was Batman covers um, or both, who knows. Um, so you can check out their stuff in 2023, coming in 2023 for uh, some things that might be Dan DiDio comic covers or variants. Much of the news from New York Comic Con came by way of show and movie updates as well as trailers and clips. So we'll start off by discussing the Wednesday trailer and updates that came with that. We obviously knew that Jenna Ortega was playing Wednesday. Morticia Adams is being played by Catherine Zeta-Jones and Gomez Adams, her husband, by Louise Guzman. We have a number of other characters here who are, some are from previous Adams Family projects and some are original characters. For example, Uncle Fester is confirmed as to being in this project and he is being played by none other than Fred Armisen, who you may know as the male half to Portlandia, which if you have never watched Portlandia, holy shit, I recommend it. It does look like a number of the characters are going to be stu uh, fellow students with Wednesday at the Nevermore Academy, which is where she's being sent off to. We have a Tyler Galpin, a Kent, a Eugene Odinger. Uh, Gwendolyn Christie is actually here playing a Larissa Weems, possibly a teacher. We have an Xavier Thorpe, Tamara Novak. 
Divina Mayor Walker. I'm guessing he's the mayor. Big, big jump of conclusions there. We have a sheriff, Donovan Galpin, again, assuming he's the sheriff. Bianca Barclay. uh, And then, of course, Christina Ricci, which uh, she obviously played the original Wednesday Addams. Well, the Wednesday Addams in the more recent iteration, I should say. But she is back and she has been revealed to be Marilyn Thornhill. Not a clue who that is, but um, she's going to be in all eight episodes apparently, but I am looking at IMDb and they have been wrong before, so who knows. We also have a doctor, ooh, Ricky Lindholm, that's fun, she's a great actress, playing Dr. Valerie Kinbot, let's see, any other interesting names? Jamie McShane, I'm not sure who that is. Um, Emma Myers is playing in Anid Sinclair. Uh, I don't know. I don't recognize any of these other names. So that will be fun. Uh, the trailer does look really fun. I, I, I don't really know what people would expect to be disappointed from it. Um, but I, I have full. No, I, I, I think it'll be entertaining. <laughs> I, I full faith that it will. Hey, that it will at least be a little entertaining. Also announced at New York Comic Con, we are getting that fourth season of Titans. I would not be surprised if this is the fourth and final scene. I honestly think that would be just fine, in my opinion. Um, I really, really enjoyed the previous season of Titans where we get Starfire and Blackfire. All of that dynamic I was just 100% into. So really happy that they're coming back for a fourth season. Um, and I hope that they, if this is, if this is going to be the last of it, that they do a really good job wrapping it all up. We also learned about a couple other things that are coming out without trailers. Um, and that included Wheel of Time season two. We kind of knew that was a thing that was happening. That's not super surprising. I have not read the books that Wheel of Time is based off of. Um, I had, a few minor issues with the uh, first season as it was on Amazon. Um, we'll see how the second season goes. I, I I enjoyed it aside from those minor issues, which honestly at this moment, uh, I cannot remember what those are aside from him eating a baby bird, which was disgusting. We also learned that Good Omens is having a second season. Good Omens is... Um, it's, it's pretty much known Neil Gaiman project, but it is actually based off of a book that was written, co-written by Neil Gaiman with Terry Pratchett. Terry Pratchett is one of my absolute all-time favorite um, child, young adult authors, I guess you would say. Um, his Tiffany Aching series is, a, uh, I think it's four books, and they are completely phenomenal. Um, unfortunately, I think the last one was written, was finished, was completed by one of his children uh, after he passed, unfortunately, it's a number of years ago. Um, and so I have never been able to bring myself to finish the series. But Good Omens is a Neil Gaiman, Terry Pratchett project. And uh, the first season was absolutely fantastic. I believe that was also on Amazon Prime. And we have uh, basically an angel and a devil, and they are played respectively by Michael Sheen and David Tennant, who I know have been doing some really fun scripted TikToks um, about British culture and whatnot recently. Um, so those are pretty funny. No, they are scripted though, so <laughs> but they are pretty funny if you want to go check those out. We also got another one that was a surprise to me. His Dark Materials is getting a third season. 
I did not know that they were doing that. Um, I know the second season, while I enjoyed it, got pretty much unanimously garbage reviews. Um, I, I, I didn't think they were going to push forward with that, but here we are, and I am, I guess, grateful for it. Why not? This was another one, um, the His Dark Materials books, The Golden Compass, The Amber Spyglass, The Something Else Dagger, I want to say. But anyway, Silver Dagger? I don't know. Um, really, really enjoyable books. Again, fantastic young adult books. Um, and there was the movie a while back that was pretty awful. Um, but the show I have been greatly enjoying. Daphne King stars as Lyra. Lin-Manuel Miranda starred as Lee Scoresby, of course, R.I.P. Uh, and then we had James McAvoy playing her uncle father and Ruth Wilson playing her mother. Um, pretty good show. I, I, that's actually a really solid cast. So, um, if you need any more convincing, that's, that should be it. I'm not sure when this will be premiering the the third season of His Dark Materials, but as soon as I know, I will uh, add that to the podcast. We also have news that Moon Girl and the Devil Dinosaur Show, I should say, the Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur Show is getting a second season, which is interesting because it has been announced prior to the season one premiere. Uh, this is one that I do not have any plan on watching because it is frankly designed in every way for children, and that would be kind of weird to be watching. <laughs> um, there's there's nothing for adults in this. This is a 100% kids show, um, but if you have kids... I'm good for you. You you can watch this, I guess. Let me know how it is. Disney also announced at New York Comic Con they are going to do some ad adaptations of Middle Eastern folktales on their Disney Plus platform um, based, I, as I understand it, somewhat in the tale of A Thousand and One Arabian Nights, um, which, as I understand it, if I recall from having heard this a long time ago, it's the king who took the bride and who and was like, oh, uh, I'm going to kill you tomorrow, but or I was going to kill you tonight, but if you can tell me a good story, then I won't kill you. Um, how messed up is that? Jesus. And so every night she tells a really great story and convinces him not to kill her. Like, oh my God, is that really what it is? Is that really what it is? How did we ever... That's awful. Anyway, uh, as in terms of Star Trek, we also had some news. Um, Picard is going to have its final season, and they had a little teaser there. We also had teasers for Discovery Season 5. I'm sorry, I could not get into Discovery. And Prodigy Season 2, which I did not even know that was a show. I had to look that up to find out what it was. Um, I have not since started watching it, but if anybody has seen it and can tell me if it's worth it, I might. They had some uh, some new trailer footage for Mindy Kaling's Scooby-Doo. Let's see. It's actually Velma, isn't it? Is that what's titled Velma? Mindy Kaling's Velma. Um, interestingly enough, Scooby-Doo the dog uh, was not allowed to be in the Velma show, so go figure. They also had some announcements of the character designs and whatnot, um, how they'll look in the show. I know they gave, um, Shaggy his, whatever it is that his, his, like, legal name is, is what they're going to be calling him instead of Shaggy. Um, I have an issue with the character designs because I don't like that look of character designs. They look, like, edgy, but not, like, edgy, like, wow, it's so cool, edgy, like, they have edges. 
they have weird edges. <laughs> they have like sharp angles to their faces and stuff. I don't, I don't, I don't like it. Finally, the last thing, they had a season four trailer for the Dragon Prince, which will bring us back to the nation, fictional nation of Zadia. I really enjoy the Dragon Prince. I'm not sorry. It's kind of like, it's in the vein of, I would say, uh, She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, kind of like that. Um, there's that like bit of dark, it's like Disneyland. It's really fun and kind of meant for kids, but adults really, really enjoy it. And there's like a little sliver vein of like terror that's always behind there, like the Haunted Mansion and animatronics and stuff at Disneyland. It's a little bit scary, but it's made for kids and it's fun. The Dragon Prince is totally up that alley and I love it. And I'm really excited that we are finally getting season four. In the DC Comics news for New York Comic Con, there was only really two points of comic book news that they put out, which is contrary to Marvel's, like, masses of information they gave us. But anyway, um, the the smaller point is that for Milestone's 30th milestone being an imprint of DC Comics, they are doing a Static Batman crossover. What they say here is just announced Static Beyond. Uh, the writer, Nicholas Draper Ivy, he's actually going to be the writer and the artist. He tweeted, I will be writing and illustrating a short story featuring an older Virgil Hawkins, who is, of course, static, and Terry McGinnis in his early days as Batman Beyond coming 2023. That is pretty cool. Um, Virgil Hawkins is a young man in the current... DC milestone canon, so it would make sense that moving into the timeline of the future timeline of Batman Beyond, where Terry McGinnis is beginning his run as Batman, that he would be a much older man. And if I'm not mistaken, um, they were also saying that Virgil Hawkins is going to be kind of in his prime as this older static, which I think is very interesting, letting characters age well, especially super characters, you know. Um, there's so many different ways to kind of play that out, and I'm I'm always looking forward to seeing the the kind of the future what-ifs, and I know at Marvel they had the the end issues and stuff like that I'm always a little bit interested in seeing. Um, this is going to be written and drawn, by as I said, by Nicholas Draper Ivy, who is uh, currently doing the recent static issues, I believe. And the one-shot is going to be a part of the 30th anniversary anthology, celebrating, as I said before, the Milestone Imprint's 30th anniversary. The only other thing that we have for DC Comics is Superman and how he is apparently entering what they're calling his family era in 2023. What I have here comes from a Gizmodo article where I am... I believe they actually spoke with writer Philip Kennedy Johnson, who is kind of the head of the Superman world at DC Comics right now, writing action comics. So here's what they have to say about it. It says, beginning in January, action issues will feature three stories focused on individual members of the Super Family, which includes China's Superman Kong Kenan, along with a with a pair of currently unnamed twins. The first story by current action writer Philip Kennedy Johnson and artist Rafa Sandoval, will, I believe it's actually Raphael, I'm not sure, will see an imprisoned Lex Luthor conscripts Metallo into undermining the Man of Steel's recent heroics. Dan Jurgens and Lee Weeks will handle the second arc about a young John Kent getting the hang of his powers on the Kent family farm. The third arc from Leah Williams and Marguerite Savage will be a three-part story focused on Power Girl 
Pearl, whose return is connected to the incoming Lazarus Planet comic event. Action's new three-story format was inspired by the triangle era that defined Superman books during the early 90s up to the early 2000s. Superman, son of Kal-El writer Tom Taylor and Clayton Henry, are teaming on Adventures of Superman John Kent, which will replace Tom Taylor, which will replace Taylor and Bruno Redondo's Son of Kal-El. The six-issue miniseries will see John battle Ultraman, who previously made John his prisoner. That same miniseries will also feature Val Zod, the Superman of Earth 2, previously created by Taylor and Nicholas Scott in the Earth 2 Worlds and miniseries. With Clark back in the picture, we'll be headlining a new he'll be headlining a new main Superman comic by Joshua Williamson and Jamal Campbell. In addition to the old baddies like Parasite and Liveware coming out of the woodwork, Williamson teases that new ones should would be showing up to test Clark. But after having spent so long making DC Universe go to hell, the writer confessed the feeling elated at getting the chance to handle to feeling elated at getting the chance to handle one of the publisher's most uplifting heroes. After the darkness of the last year in the DCU, there is no character better suited to lead DC into the light than Superman, said Williamson. I'm very excited to take Clark Kent on a fun, pulp-style adventure in Metropolis against his greatest villains. And it says Superman's new family-centric era will begin with Action Comics 1051 on January 24th, 2023, followed by Superman in February and John Kent in March. And finally, we'll get to the much bulkier Marvel Comics news from New York Comic Con. Starting off with Marvel uh, and their plan to introduce Al Harper as Ghostlight. Al Harper is a character who was introduced in Silver Surfer number five, and that particular issue won the Alley Awards in 1969 for Best Full Length Story. I have not gotten a chance to read it myself, but after finding this information, I think I might. As for their plans for Ghostlight, not a not a clue. Not a dang clue. But for whatever reason, they felt that it was important enough to announce their return. So keep your ears open, I suppose. Also announced was Bloodline, Daughter of Blade. This is a series that is going to be written by Danny Lore with art by Karen S. Darbo. We had the introduction of Bloodline in the Free Comic Book Day of 2022. She is the Daughter of Blade who had kind of sort of been rumored in the past before and now they are bringing her in as an adult, of course, uh, to sort of take up the mantle of her father. This kind of was going to be mild inspiration for the Blade movie, which of course has now been uh, scrapped and is being rewritten and has been pushed back so that to give them more time to work on it. Um, whether or not that's going to affect the series, I, I highly doubt it. These things are planned a long time in advance. Uh, so we will still be getting a miniseries, Bloodline, Daughter of Blade. We're also getting a, a series called Bishop War College. I'm assuming that this is going to be a mini-series focused on Bishop training the rest of the X-Men in defending Krakoa. It's only the only assumption you really can have. We're also getting Gambit and Rogue are getting a series called Rogue and Gambit, and it'll be a five-issue series written by Stephanie Phillips, who is at DC writing Harley Quinn currently, and it has art by Carlos Gomez and covers by Steve Morris. This will be a series that kicks off in March 2023. In February 2023, we have Betsy Braddock, Captain Britain. The series is ongoing, as far as I can tell, written by um, 
Excalibur writer Tini Howard will be penciled by Vasco Georgiev uh, and have covers by Erica Durso. We have variants also already announced by Peach Momoko, Otto Schmidt, and Erica Durso. In less exciting news, this had better be a freaking flashback story. X-23 Deadly Regenesis by Erica Schultz and Edgar Salazar, cover by Kalman Androwski. Androwski. Uh, this is going to be March 2023, and like I said, this had better be a flashback story because Laura has not been X-23 in a very long time. There has been ground into us readers that she is Wolverine. Why would we go back on that? That's a little bit offensive to the character and the readers, let's be honest, to make that established and then wipe it all away. But what do I know? What do I know? Uh, Marvel Comics events were also announced. I am not excited for a single one of these, to be honest. Yeah, but we'll go through what they have to say about them. Starting with Avengers Assemble. It says visionary writer Jason Aaron brings his nearly five years run of Avengers to an incredible end. I'm just going to stop right there. Nobody likes this run of Avengers. I have seen extremely limited positive remarks on Jason Aaron's entire run, and I read the first, like, 30 issues. So, come on. It says, joined by artists Brian Hitch, Javier Garon, and Aaron Cooter, Aaron will tie together his work on Avengers, Avengers Forever, nobody gave a shit about that, and Avengers of 1 million BC, again, nobody gave a shit about that, in a multiverse-spanning saga that sees the Avengers go to war against an unprecedented army of villains and prove why they're the mightiest heroes of all Earth. That, I'm sorry, that's stupid. Next up, Dark Web. The two spurned clones of the Marvel Universe. Didn't have to be that way, you guys could literally fix that with just better writing. Madeline Pryor and Ben Riley team up as Goblin Queen and Chasm to unleash their revenge in the Spider-Man and X-Men crossover that pays off decades of comic book storytelling. No, not really, because if you actually paid attention to the decades of comic storytelling, you would know that Madeline Pryor is a character who was really important to the X-Men before she was even the Goblin Queen. Just ignoring all of that. So you know, you're not paying off decades of comic book storytelling. The dramatic event will fan the flames of the classic Inferno crossover once again. Ugh. And impact Spider-Man, the X-Men, Venom, Ms. Marvel. What does Ms. Marvel have to do with this? Let her live. And more in a series of tie-ins and limited series. Of course, of course, because it can't just be one thing. You have to try and get all of the cash you can from your readers, huh? With all these tie-ins. And then you have Sins of Sinister, which I am even less excited for. Mr. Sinister's devious machinations yield the darkest Marvel comics future to date. We've already- okay, I'm not even gonna read this. We've already done this Mr. Sinister thing in, like, 2013. There was, like, a whole run of X-Men comics that he was the villain for. Did we forget that? It was the Sleeping Celestial? No? Nobody remembers that? At Marvel, at least. <laughs> We've been here, done that, folks. Next up is Captain America Cold War, currently sharing the cap the mantle of Captain America. Oh boy. Oh boy. Uh, I was just reading ahead. Captain America, Steve Rogers, and Sam Wilson's current adventures collide in this crossover between Captain America, Sentinel of Liberty, and Captain America, Symbol of Truth. A pivotal chapter in the 80-year history of Captain America, this espionage-fueled action thriller will be a culmination of various plot threads in this acclaimed new era, including the rise of the Outer Circle, Nomad's Return, 
the brewing of conflict with Wakanda and White Wolf and Bucky's new persona and mission. Sounds like a lot of rehashing, if we're being honest. And Summer of the Symbiotes. Suns out, tongues out. Okay, that's kind of funny. Spinning out of titles like Venom, Carnage, and Red Goblin comes a slew of new symbiotic stories. Get ready for the return of old faces, the debut of new symbiote heroes, and exciting shifts for iconic symbiote stars. It's a season of symbiote insanity. Honestly, this is probably the one that's going to be the least bad, in my opinion, because we may actually get some Scream here. I love Scream, most recently known as Silence. We'll kind of have to, Clay McLeod Chapman put that one in play. We'll have to wait and see if they continue that or put her back into being just Scream. Um, I, that's that's why I would care about this. That's it. <laughs> and the last one is Fall of X. It is not happening in autumn. It is happening in summer. Therefore, it's not even a good pun. It's Fall of X without a pun, which felt very obvious to put a pun in there, but okay. It says the X-Men hoped Crow would last forever. Time to find out if they were right. Obviously not. Why would you be making this a whole thing if they were going to end up keeping Krakoa? And can we please have a status quo last for more than three years with the X-Men? Like... It really hasn't been that long since Krakoa happened and they've been settled and everything. Like, can we can we just let that be the status quo for more than a week? Uh, yeah, I clearly don't have much good to say about the coming of Marvel Comics, so let's move on. Now, I did mention when we were skipping comic book picks this week, so let's go ahead and go into comic book polls. These are things that come out this week, October 12th release date. Starting with Marvel Comics, we'll also cover DC Comics, Image, Scout, Archie, Ablaze, Dynamite, and Antarctic Press. And again, I have to mention I'm not covering all of the comics coming from those publishers. It is just the ones that I myself am interested in reading. There is a vast world of comics outside of what I talk about on this podcast, so if you do not find anything that I mention interesting, do yourself the favor and ask your local comic shop. They will be happy to help you. So Marvel, we have Namor the Submariner number one. A century into the future, not much land remains on Earth. A combination of a worsening climate and a devastating war with the Kree has left the surface of the planet mostly inhospitable, with an ever-dwindling population of air breathers and a profound lack of superheroes to protect them. Enter Namor, who's, who... Who these many years on is no longer king of Atlantis, but ruler of the entire world. This is Christopher Cantwell with artist uh, and cover artist Pascal Ferry, variants by uh, Pepe Larraz, Nettie's Games, and Tarin Clark. Wakanda number one. The Black Panther is no longer welcome in Wakanda. Who is this first proud nation? Who is this proud nation without its king? This exciting new miniseries answers that question as each issue spotlights a different fan-favorite Wakandan character. First up, Shuri. This is by Evan Narcisse, Stephanie Williams, Natasha Bustos, and Paco Medina. We have two, we have three Judgment Day tie-ins this week. Well, three Judgment Day spin-offs this week, and that's going to be Axe Eternals, Iron Fist, and Death of the Mutants. Uh, for Eternals, we're going to be focusing on Ajax. This is by Kieran Gillen and Pascal Ferry. Covers are Nick Klein and Salvador La Roca. The Iron Fist issue is by Alyssa Wong and Michael Eag, with art by Marika Cresta, and covers by Philip Tan and Michael Eag. Then we have uh, Death of the Mutants, which again is by Kieran Gillen and Guiu. Villanova, with covers by Assad Ribic and Simone Bianchi. 
Daredevil number four is by Chip Sarsky and Raphael De La Torre, with covers by Marco Cicchetto, J. Scott Campbell, Kale New, and Paolo Siqueira. Immortal X-Men number seven is also a Judgment Day tie-in. We say a serious bamf. Even if you're the heart of the X-Men, there are days when you want to tear people's heart out people's heart. Judgment Day is one of them. What extreme steps will Nightcrawler take in the name of the spark? Not even want to know what that's talking about. This one is Kieran Gillen and Lucas Wernick. Yes, I think Kieran Gillen is working on too much. The covers are by Mark Brooks, Phil Noto, and Sarah Pacelli. And uh, we have actually another, these last two for Marvel are also Judgment Day cross tie-ins, technically. Um, Captain Marvel number 42, uh, it says, Though Carol has had more than enough of being judged lately, there's no escaping this Judgment Day as it determines whether Earth lives or dies. But as Carol and L'Oreal give their heroic best to prove their worth, an unexpected new player emerges. It's their mom. She's the one who's judging them. Um, Kelly Thompson and Andrea DeVito is who we have there, with covers by Jesus Aburtov, Gurahiru, and Jamie McKelvey. Finally, Fantastic Four number 48 is a continuation of this honestly really good Sue Storm saga by David Pepose and Juan Cabal with a Mark Buckingham variant. From DC Comics, we have Dark Crisis, Worlds Without a Justice League, Green Arrow. This is obviously going to be exploring the Green Arrow and Black Canary worlds of um, the pariah universe that he's creating, right? So this is by Stephanie Phillips and Dennis Culver, with art by Clayton Harry, Henry and Nicole Vieira. Covers are by Megan Wang, Clayton Henry, and Nicole Vieira. Batman Incorporated kicks off with number one this week. It says, From the pages of Batman comes an all-new, all-exciting adventure for Ghostmaker and his Batman Incorporated team. The team's trust issues and detective skills are immediately put to the test when someone from Ghostmaker and Batman's recent past is brutally murdered. Is this an isolated event, sending message, uh, sending a message to the two? Or is this the start of something darker and more sinister? Hint, it's dark and sinister. Here we have Ed Brisson and John Timms charting a new chapter for Batman Incorporated, uh, with covers by Jorge Molina, Jeff Spokes, and Derek Chu. DC has their Halloween one-shot, Terrors Through Time, number one. This says, October is here, and that means time for fables of fear, time for stories of suspense, and times for tales of time. Join us for a terrifying tour across the ages from some of comics' top talent. Witness zombie menace of the... Witness zombies menace the JSA in the 1940s. Experience the haunting of Gotham City sirens in 1990s. Watch as Swamp Thing goes up against an irradiated monstrosity in the far future. These are just a taste of the time-topping terrors we have in store for you in our fright-filled Halloween anthology. Writers here are Paul Levitz, Sholly Fish, Jeremy Hahn, Tim Seeley, Zach Thompson, and Matthew Levine with art by... Charles Skaggs, Peter Wen, Tom Mandrake, Nick Kelly Jones, Luciano Vecchio, and Jorge Corona. We also have Batman vs. Robin, number two by Mark Wade and Mahmoud Asrar, variants by Greg Picapulo, Francis Manipal, Clayton Henry, and Rafael Sarmento, and finally for DC Comics, Superman, Son of Kal-El, number 16, which is part two of The Return of Kal-El. That is going to be continued from Action Comics 1047 and will be continued in 1048. This issue of Son of Kal-El is written by Tom Taylor um, with art by Cian Tormi, and we have Travis Moore, Ariel Colon, and Megan Wang on the variant covers.
from Image Comics, Hitomi Number One. In feudal era Japan, a driver, a drifter with no prospects, begins training in secret under Yasuke, a once famous, displaced, disgraced warrior, as she struggles to find her place in society entrenched in discrimination and violence. Combining the historical sweep and elegance of Kurosawa and the visceral action of Tarantino, this saga follows the trials and tribulations of a young female warrior who travels the countryside unendingly as she works to gain the rank of samurai, a title no man, monster, or myth can give to her, but one that she will have to take for herself. This is by H.S. Tak and Isabella Mazzantini, Sorry, Mazanti, with variants by Peach Momoko and Amanke Nahuelpan. I'm so sorry. Love Everlasting number three comes from Tong King and Elsa Chartier, with a variant cover by Jen Sejic. Starhenge, book one, The Dragon and the Boar, has number four, and this is all Liam Sharp. And then Seven Sons, number five, by Robert Windham, Kevin, Kelvin Mao, and Jay Lee. From Scout Comics, we are having Aza the Barbs, writer Pat Shandon artist Rio Burton launched a new fantasy epic as it was born into a family that for generations served in the Obsidian Guard, a military unit of holy warriors. During Aza's coronation, a magical ceremony that would imbue her with a holy glowing power, something went wrong. Instead of her sacred obsidian tattoos, she became marred with thorn black markings and was banished by her people. Now Aza lives in solitude, guarding a great evil, but when that evil escapes and begins to spread its wicked power, Aza must make a choice, save the people that expelled her or allow her home to fall to evil. When, with an emotional, comedic, and awe-inspiring story of empowerment, Aza the Bard blends fantasy, adventure, mythology, horror, and action in this unforgettable new series. And we have, we already mentioned Pat Shand and Rio Burton with a variant by Liana Congus. From Archie Comics, The Chilling Adventures of Salem, number one by Colin Bunn and Dan Schoening. Salem the cat has always been known as Sabrina's familiar, but what happens when Sabrina's not around to protect him, or, as is more the case, when he doesn't have to protect her? This special one-shot explores a different side of Salem's life, and when he act, in one in which he acts as an anti-hero enacting vigilante justice on those who hurt others like him. Animals, in a horror story that's equal parts pet cemetery and hereditary. This has covers by Dan Schoening, Francesco Francavia, and Danny Lukert. L's number three is out from Ablaze Comics this week, by Kid Toussaint and Abilene Stockart, with a variant by Julie Marot. I have yet to find this one. I'm probably just going to buy it on trade paperback when it's complete. From Dynamite, we have Scarlet Sisters number one by Alex Segura and Emiliana Pina. When a mysterious and deadly cult-like organization inches closer to taking control of New York City's criminal and political systems, Masquerade, Women in Red and Lady Santana team up as the Scarlet Sisters. Can SS solve the murder of one of their own allies while pushing back against the unseen corrupt foes? Find out in this standalone one-shot from best-selling crime writer Alex Segura and artist Emiliana Pina which creates an important jumping-on point for fans old and new, and sets the stage for future Scarlet Sister adventures. We have variants for this issue by Joseph Michael Linzer, Alex Ross, Jacob Edgar, and Lee Reed Lee. Finally, 
from Antarctic Press, Unprepped, number one. This is by Scott Beattie, Chuck Dixon, and Marlon Shoup. You may think you're ready for the apocalypse, but even after lockdown plagues, town-raising natural disasters, and an ever-present threat of rogue nations going nuclear, the average Joe just isn't prepared for a total global disaster. Witness mankind's transition from the digital age to the stone age in the blink of an eye, and the only light comes from an angry sun setting on two families struggling to survive. We had the penultimate episode of She-Hulk Attorney at Law this week, episode 8, titled Ribbit and Rip It, which, yes, is centered around Leapfrog, a.k.a. Eugene. Now, technically, the character who they are putting in here is ultimately Frogman from the comics. He was the original Leapfrog's son. While in the comics, that character wanted to go against his father's villainy and be a street-level hero, this show makes him definitely a dunce and kind of an aspiring hero at first, and then sort of reveals that he's actually more of a villain wishing to follow his father's footsteps because it's easier. He misuses his super suit and takes to GLK and H to have them, and then Jen specifically, sue the suit's creator, who happens to be the same guy who makes Jen's own outfits and clothing for her as She-Hulk. In the comics, Leapfrog is represented by Matt's best friend, Foggy Nelson, in a similar claim that his costume shoes were faulty. It's pretty much exactly what happens here. This case in the show causes an obvious rift between Jen and the designer of her clothes, Luke. As seemingly the only person capable of making her appropriate clothes, this is not going to sit well with Jen. Enter Matt Murdock, Daredevil, who is Luke's defense attorney in court. He mentions also, just kind of a fun little Easter egg, that the Sokovia Accords have been repealed. Uh, therefore, Cap was right. We all knew that. He goes off to chase, oh, this is after, after court, he ends up going off as Daredevil to chase Leapfrog in his car. Leapfrog is just Eugene, so it's kind of car versus Daredevil. Uh, Eugene calls She-Hulk for backup because she also happens to be his attorney. The scene of her fighting Daredevil, in my opinion, was a little bit up and down. Cool to see, um, but really, I, I don't want to say unrealistic because, again, we're talking gamma-radiated superheroes here. Um, but I guess I would say, like, unbelievable is more accurate, uh, in the sense that Jen does masses of public structural damage uh, to people's cars and to this whole parking garage that they're at, and doesn't even blink, doesn't even think twice, doesn't do a double take, doesn't go, whoopsies, my bad, like, it doesn't even phase her. Where is the empathy that Jen is supposed to have? Where is the relatability? Like, where is the, oh, whoops, I didn't mean to do that. Like, you're just gonna destroy all these people's cars and just go on with life like you didn't. It's, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> but what was good about the fight was that she does just straight up grab Daredevil and rip his mask off instead of doing the predictable putzing around him and then him getting away, unseen of identity. And of course, Jen immediately recognizes him as Matt Murdock from court earlier just that day and makes the joke about him pretending to be a blind man and how awful that is. He's not pretending. He, he more or less explains himself. <laughs> His suit that we see is a very muted red and yellow, taking after what was his original suit from the comics, um, you know, kind of, his, his original Daredevil suit, I guess, which was only really worn for an issue or so, but this is, the suit itself is a reference to his father's boxing legacy with the design and the colors and everything. So then he goes ahead and, uh, 
introduces himself properly to Jen, you know, as their secret identities. Uh, she reverts into herself after their introduction, and he goes, oh, well, I'm Daredevil. And she she clearly has never heard of that and thinks that it's a pretty stupid name. So Matt just got his ego checked pretty strongly. <laughs> Street-level heroing, bud, it's going to take a while for that kind of press to make it to the West Coast from Hell's Kitchen. Just a thought. Uh, so then the big fight in the episode is Matt and Jen going as their hero personas to see what Eugene is really up to. And he's pretty much gathered his father's thugs to kidnap and force Luke, the costume designer, to make him a new and improved frog suit. Uh, leap frog suit. Which makes me wonder, is this going to be him as Frogman? We really will never know. So the two of them bust in. You know, Jenna confronts him as his attorney, and she advises that this end now. Matt fights the thugs, gets his ego checked a couple more times, and they have a funny, you know, what wasn't thugs, it was um, goons versus henchmen. Thugs, I feel like, is a nice middle ground. I don't know. Maybe thugs is more like goons. I don't know. But the way that they, like, in all honesty the way that they explained the difference between goons and henchmen was spot on. It really was. So, in any case, um, the lair itself um, really reminded me of the Poison Ivy and Bane lair from Batman and Robin movie. Um, I think it was the Batman and Robin movie. It was the one with Poison Ivy. Uh, you know which one I'm talking about? It was all covered in vines and whatnot, no doubt, in reference to his frog theme, just like all of the games and decorative items in his lair. The fight sequence ends with Eugene trying to leap out of the building to escape, and he just breaks both his legs. So he is out of the hero and villain business for a while, because he really, he really needs to figure out which side of that path he wants to be on before he comes back anyway. Uh, Jen and Matt end up at her place, of course, uh, with her as actually Jen, which is nice. Um, it's a nice change. Uh, I, I, he goes off in the morning, he obviously walking, he, it's really cute actually, he walks barefoot in his daredevil costume down the sunny Los Angeles Boulevard, humming to himself, and people are watching him go by like, what? They don't know who Daredevil is? Uh, this is obviously not the foundation of some deep, meaningful, long-term relationship. I really don't see it going that way. It seemed to me more like two like-minded people having some fun together before going back to their individual respective lives. And we see Jen in her apartment too, of course, equally thrilled at the events of the night before. There's a plethora of memes and jokes about that scene of her afterwards online, so go find yourself some funny ones. I can't really mention them on this podcast. Uh, so then Jen realizes that the show is still going, and that means that a twist or reveal or something is about to happen. So she makes a crack about another Hulk showing up, but Red, as an obvious reference to Thunderbolt Ross's Red Hulk, who we won't be seeing, but played by William Hurt, who unfortunately passed in recent years. But rumors have it that they may recast the character. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. I'd honestly be more interested in seeing Betty Ross, his daughter, returning, um, hopefully played by Liv Tyler as uh, she played her in the Incredible Hulk movie, and maybe taking her own journey down the Red Hulk harpy path, but less detrimental to herself. Jen also mentions getting refrigerated, or getting fridge, I think is what she says, which at this point I think most people would understand as a reference to women in refrigerators, which is... 
the concept of how women are consistently traumatized in fiction, specifically comics, uh, for the sake of a male character's growth. Uh, the term women in refrigerators comes from Gail Simone, who coined it after seeing uh, Kyle Rayner's girlfriend murdered and stuffed in a fridge. Kyle Rayner from DC Comics' Green Lantern. She's murdered and stuffed in a fridge and left as a surprise for him to find. And that is for his own emotional character development when, meanwhile, she is dead. So, that's Women in Refrigerators. Uh, for a final direct comic reference, then we have uh, the elusive Nikki. I'm still... Who the fuck is Nikki? Jumps out from behind the wall uh, with makeup brushes in her hands between the fingers, three of them like Wolverine. So the last thing is the gala, the gala where Jen fully expects to win the award for Female Attorney of the Year or something, and has the Luke design sparkly dress to prove it. And to be honest... An issue I continually have with this is that Jen constantly says she just wants to be accepted as a great attorney in her own right, no green monstrous involved, but then insists on going to these events as She-Hulk instead of Jen. The wedding, the court case, this gala, obviously the psychology of becoming She-Hulk is going to be pretty complex, but this seems a more direct like a lot more directly like cognitive dissonance which is saying one thing while doing the opposite <laughs> and she does get her own ego checked massively too when her name is called as the winner but it is only the first among a whole list of women for the award the whole list apparently of women up for the award in a publicity stunt no doubt or possibly an attempt to not show favoritism towards or against the Hulk in the room. <laughs> but there is one bit that I did briefly really enjoy with Mallory Book once again not bending for anyone and saying straight up her issues with the lawyering world as a female attorney. Love it. But the rest of the women are cut off when the presentation screen behind them is taken over by the intelligentsia in a massive video display attempt to shame and tear down Jennifer Walters' She-Hulk. It's uh, it's it's mostly pretty dumb stuff from stolen from her cell phone texts and photos, but then we get to the revenge porn, and that's to me the scary thing about this is that revenge porn is real. It's when a couple or a partner films himself, you know, having sex or doing something involving nudity and or sexual acts. Whether or not both parties know, the video is still made, and when the relationship turns sour down the line, that video ends up being put online to shame the usually female partner. I know this is real because my first personal encounter with this was when I was in the seventh grade and a classmate had to move schools because the boy she texted a nude photo of herself to forwarded it to the whole class because he didn't like her. It's the same concept, and she was 13 years old. How he didn't get kicked out himself, I wish I could tell you. So there's Jen, on stage, while a video of her beginning to have sex with Josh, the guy who ghosted her previously, plays behind her on a massive screen in front of her co-workers, her colleagues, her parents, and her friends. People are taking out cameras, whispering, the whole nine yards, and Jen is a hulk now. Her psychology is complex, and that includes her rage. And it does get the best of her, with She-Hulk roaring and ripping down the screen in electronic pieces. It's far too late when she realizes that she's being filmed, 
intentionally by Intelligentsia members. I found a really nice blurb about this episode that I would like to read off to you here. I have the link in the description. This is from Collider writer Monita Mohan. This dips into revenge porn territory, which has devastating impact on victims. It's such a needlessly cruel thing to do, and we know that Bruce Banner Hulk, Mark Ruffalo, for all the damage he's accidentally caused, has not had to face this type of sexual harassment. She-Hulk attorney-at-law creator and head writer Jessica Gao has said that she has was keen to bring different women's live, lived experiences to the show, and the result is a series that looks at the many ways that women have to navigate an overly bigot overtly bigoted society, online and off. The creative team has taken inspiration, if you can call it such, from actual comments made by men online about the show before it even aired, and the progression of intelligentsia from being losers on the internet to a tangible threat to Jen is an analogy of how often the powers that be dismiss trolling and online comments without addressing how doxing and death threats can really affect people. Intelligentsia may have started off as a joke, but that's what makes them a particularly powerful villain. No one took them seriously, not because they aren't danger, but because authorities often don't recognize online hate speech as real threats. You can kill Thanos, but hate and prejudice don't disappear overnight. By the end of episode 8, Intelligentsia's actions enrage Jen to the point that she literally starts smashing everything, terrifying the people around her. She looks like a monster, but all she's doing is fighting back. Intelligentsia has effectively discredited Jen, even though they were the ones who pushed her to the edge and led her to her losing control of her rage, which is perfectly normal reaction to extremely stressful situations. The group has probably done this with hopes of of ending her career, not just as She-Hulk, but as Jennifer Walters, the attorney. If that's not a villainous thing to do, what is? And again, I will have that article linked in its entirety, um... In the, dis- in the description of this episode. So, now that we've gone over that, as for the less serious factors of this episode, <laughs> shake it off. Uh, Jen's superhero look. I liked it. Very much inspired by the Soul era, the Charles Soul era of her comics, and the outfits that she wore around that time. The fact that she can wear it both big and small, and it's more or less that kind of athletic look, I think that definitely takes from both um, a recent Avengers look, which I we call the Kirby look. It's purple and white. Um, and that same, I think it also takes from that same Soul one, which had a more of a loose athletic pants and tank top kind of look. So it's a bit of a combination of the two. But I am glad they pretty much solved uh, immediately the problem, the potential problem of her ripping through her outfits constantly and always winding up scandalously clad because of it. It's 2022. We can think of better ideas for humor than that. <laughs> and Matt Murdock, his his new Daredevil suit. It did look better in the daytime than I expected. I thought it would look like trash. It, it was fine. It's much more muted uh, than I think I gave it credit for. Uh, for the brief moment that we saw it during the daylight, it looked fine at least. It, it, it was it was just a moment, but it was funny. Uh, Charlie Cox, he does continue to be completely on spot with his portrayal of Matt Murdock and Daredevil, though I still don't really like how obvious they made it that Matt is super powered, um, and they just make it so no one really notices or questions it, like in No Way Home. That really, that really bothered me. Uh, so that's the entirety of episode 
8. Episode 9, as I'm speaking, is actually out. I haven't watched it. We'll be watching it tonight. Uh, and the finale of episode 9 will be covered on uh, the Yancey Street Podcast, episode 82. <clears throat> Finally, I would like to speak again on the penultimate episode of Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. This is an eight-episode series. Episode seven from last Friday was called The Eye. A lot of this is going to kind of be going point for point, what's happening and what we learn until we get further down and stuff that I'm kind of more into theories and whatnot about. Um, the previous episode, of course, ended with Mount Doom being created in its first rupture in many ages, destroying the land around it entirely. In this episode, we see just how bad that destruction really is. First off, Muriel is blinded, the queen. She will return to Numenor, and she will rally an army's response force. This is really interesting because the Numenorians did first come to help and support Middle-earth, but in time, with their army's response, they eventually will be coming for tribute, wealth, servitude, and their empire. Isilador is presumed dead after getting caught in the same building collapse that blinded the queen Muriel. Personally, I think he just took his opportunity to leave the army and explore Middle-earth the way that he'd always wanted to. I feel like that makes a ton of sense, and obviously we know that he's not dead because he has a great and terrible destiny to fulfill. Literally, the greatest and most terrible destiny. Uh, Elendil, his father, very clearly regrets ever getting involved with Galadriel or supporting her in any way now that all of this has unfolded and he believes his son to be dead, and now he's tied into a war he never wanted to be a part of. Galadriel, on her own, uh, she speaks of Celeborn, or sorry, Celeborn is what she called him, which I thought it was Celeborn, I guess I'm wrong. Uh, he is her husband, and she mentions that she uh, sent him off to war and never saw him again, so he is believed dead. We do know that we see him in the Fellowship of the Rings, though, um, so he will probably be reappearing at some point. And there was even a, a statement from the directors of the show, or the showrunners, whoever they were, who were saying that, you know, what Galadriel, you know, what what you think is happening, you know, we just cut off the the because you know Galadriel is supposed to have her daughter, and her daughter then marries Elrond, and Elrond and her daughter have three kids. They have a set of twins, and they have a daughter, Arwen. Arwen, of course, marries Aragorn. We, we know this from the main stuff, right? So um, at this point in time, we don't actually know if. Galadriel has had children, or if she is just currently not a mother and just presumes her husband is dead and will eventually reunite with him and have children then. Also, sidebar a little bit, she does give her sword to the kid, um, whatever his name is. Uh, Bronwyn's son, whatever his name is. So Bronwyn, um, uh, an interesting part for her for this episode is that she decides to take the survivors to the port settlement of Pelargir, if I'm saying that right, uh, which is significant for the, uh, the stuff that we see later on in the Tolkien media, right? Uh, for one, it says, for one thing, I, I kind of took bits of this from another, uh, Collider article, but I didn't save it, my bad. Uh, one thing that they say is that during the fall of the Numenor, the fall of Numenor, Pelargir, um, 
me backtrack. Yeah, during they, they have really bad editing on what they wrote. They say during the fall of Numenor, Pelargir becomes a safe haven for those of the faithful, who were the ones who are kind of siding with the elves and whatnot, who have been driven away from their home and retains some of the memory of what was best in Numenor. It becomes later this. It also becomes the site of another later salvation, as it is Pelargir in the Third Age that Aragorn destroys the fleet of the Corsairs of Umbar with the help of the Army of the Dead, as he goes to the relief of. Minas Tirith. That was Return of the King. That should be pretty solid in your memory if you've watched those movies in the past few years, or if you've seen them as many times as I have. Um, the ships of the Corsairs, the pirates and whatnot, they um, they show up and to Minas Tirith, and oh, it's not the Corsairs. The Corsairs have already been slaughtered. It's Aragorn and the Ghost Army. No! And it kills all the... I mean, yes, it's good. No, it was from the Dwork, the orcs perspective <laughs> uh, so that's a fun tie-in to future tolkien writings and stories then we have casa doom remember casa doom is the dwarf lord place where they are you know we have um all the dwarf stuff's happening there basically you know it's the place with the stuff uh, basically uh the king and his son are arguing intensely they the king refuses uh, point blank to allow Mithril to be mined, elf survival be damned, because remember the elves, the elven trees are dying, they're infected, and they believe the Mithril mate save them. Uh, honestly, to me though, the drama between the father and son is one of the least interesting parts of the show for me, uh, but the important part here is the location. Not only is this where they're apparently finding Mithril, it is where we see the Balrog awakened in the Fellowship of the Rings much, 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 much later on. It's important now because deep, deep in the mountain, that Balrog is now awakening. Um, and I guess that the other important thing was the proof that the Mithril can heal the sickness from the um, the elven forest by its mere presence. They put the leaf next to the Mithril and it cleared it of the sickness. So that you know, that'd be super great if the elves could get their hands on that. On that, <laughs> uh, but as far as I know, they they don't. I didn't look that far into it, but we'll find out. Probably not in the next episode, though. Next couple of seasons. <laughs> Meanwhile, and uh, finally, the Harfoots, they come across, they start to come across the intense damage in the trees and the fruits of the trees along their journey from the eruption of Mount Doom. And the stranger, seeing how it's going to cause issues for them, he tries to fix it. And he does at first seem to fail, uh, but in the morning, the whole land is lush and green and fruitful. And to me, this must be the start of the Harfoots being able to stop being nomadic hunter-gatherers and lay roots for their families to live in a single place for generations to come. The stranger, though, he did already move on, uh, thinking himself a burden, which makes it complicated when they, the Harfoots, end up encountering that triad of white-clad, magical-looking women who seem to have... At magic <laughs> as they burn the Harfoot's carts to the ground. They definitely seem to be searching for the stranger still, but for what intent? This episode pretty much solidified opinions that the stranger is Gandalf, while at the same time, or a little bit later, releasing a promo for the final episode, the finale, which makes it seem like he's actually gonna be Sauron. So... Do I think that we're going to find out who Sauron is in the end of this episode? Hell no. Hell no. <laughs> 
I do not think that they're going to let us know that, but I don't know. It, maybe they'll give us some hints. <laughs> We're going to spend the next like year waiting for season two of this show, just arguing about who the stranger is. I don't know. We'll see. It is The finale is up on the 14th of October. For me right now, that is tomorrow, and I'm super excited to get up early in the morning and watch it because that's become kind of a tradition for me with that because I don't, I don't work tomorrow. So that's exciting. Uh, and that wraps up this week's episode. Of course, um, we'll be back next week talking all the comics that I have missed. <laughs> um, and again, the finale of She-Hulk Attorney at Law, as well as the finale of Rings of Power. Um, I don't think there's any more crazy new stuff that we're expecting to have, like cons. New York Comic Con, aside from San Diego Comic Con, is one of the biggest conventions uh, in terms of news and, uh, information output for pretty much any geek related company. So, uh, I think we've pretty much made it through the con announcement season. Um, and now we just got to wait and let it all, let it all happen. Oh yeah. Wakanda forever tickets are out. Get your tickets for that and watch it. Cause it's going to be good. Uh, have a good week, drive safe, get some rest and don't forget to drink your water. <laughs>